As an overview of the book of Romans, we've divided it up into four sections. The first being the wrath of God. The second being the grace of God. We've covered both of those and we're done with it. Now beginning in chapters 9, 10, and 11, we have the plan of God as it relates to the Jew and to the non-Jew. That's us, the Gentiles. And then finally, the will of God. That's the practical section. That's where Paul says, live what you know is true now. These things, based on these things, this is how you ought to live. In the very beginning of the book, he paints a very black picture of you and I. And the book of Romans is good for anyone who thinks that they're better than the average bear. The first few chapters let us know that Paul divides all humanity into three segments. The pagan, the out-and-out sinner, the corrupt person who has no moral basis for worshiping God at all. The true God, that is. And then second, the moralist person is, well, I'm not really belonging to your religion, but I'm a good person and I live by certain standards. And then finally, the strict religious person, the religious Jew, who by the observance of the law wanted to be made righteous. Now, all three of those camps, Paul gets out the black paint on and he paints it all black and he says, every one born is corrupt. There is depravity that has fallen from the chain and the line of Adam through everyone who has ever been born. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. So we're left from chapter 1, beginning around verse 17 or 18, after some introductory remarks in the setup of the gospel, with a, a low view of ourselves, the proper view of ourselves, before we can understand the grace of God. Then beginning in chapter 3, verse 21, there is a change. It says, the righteousness of God is revealed from heaven through the gospel. The gospel, the good news, reveals that God can make unrighteous people. And he just said, you're all unrighteous. He can make unrighteous people and declare them righteous. Beginning right around chapter 3, verse 21, through chapter 8 to the end, he talks about the grace of God. And, and that's been awesome as we've studied it the last several weeks. Now in chapter 9, the plan of God. And the church in Rome had an ethnic mix. That is, there were Jews and there were Greeks, mostly Greeks, a few Jews, but there was this mix. Ethnic, religious mix. And questions surfaced. In fact, you've seen him answer lots of questions in this book. Remember all the times Paul has said, what shall we say then? And he anticipates an argument and he answers the question, he continues this now about Israel. Here's the problem. God made a whole bunch of promises in the Old Testament to one nation, the Jewish nation. Those promises revolved around their coming Messiah. Okay, he came, but they didn't receive him. A whole bunch of Gentiles have come into the church. It's largely at this point Gentile movement, non-Jewish not like it started in Jerusalem. What about all of those promises God made to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, the covenant promises, etc.? Is God ever going to fulfill those now that Israel has rejected her Messiah? It was well known that Israel nationally rejected Jesus as Messiah. Scripture says he came into his own 
and his own received him not. Jesus said as he stood on the Mount of Olives and wept, How often I would have gathered you like a mother hen gathers her chicks, but you were not willing. And then he predicted their downfall. And somewhere between his prediction and that downfall in 70 A.D., this letter was penned. And there were lots of questions. Does the rejection of Jesus as Messiah necessitate the rejection of the nation of Israel permanently? Because they have been set aside. He'll deal with that in chapter 10. Okay, giving that as a background, I want to scoot you back into chapter 8 just to, to show you the difference in the tone of this section. We ended chapter 8 with a wonderful hymn of praise. Paul was on a high. It's like he's dancing around the room going, yes, God's grace is so amazing. And look at verse 38 of chapter 8. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor powers nor things present nor things to come nor height nor depth nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. Now chapter 9 begins on a low note. After such a and he's going, wee, spinning around the room, so happy. You look how chapter 9 opens. I tell the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart. And he's going to talk about his brethren, the Jews. To somebody who is familiar with Paul's writings, Chapter 9 strikes that person as rather odd. Because if we know Paul from his other writings, we know that Paul is fond of doctrinal sections up front. He likes to cover the guts of the stuff, cover the doctrine. After the doctrine, he likes to pause and shift into application. And it would make sense if Paul were to join chapter 12, verse 1, with the last verse of chapter 8 after talking about the wrath of God and the grace of the person or the grace of God and, and the person who lives under the grace of God, it would just make sense. If Paul would say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And don't be conformed to this world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's Hebrews 12, uh, Romans 12, 1 and 2. Makes sense to join them that way. Yet, three chapters form a parenthesis, it's called, a parenthetical section. Not really a parenthesis. In Paul's mind, it's all part of the same flow. But he deals with the Jew. Because of the questions, has Israel been set aside? And a follow up question if Israel has been set aside by God because they rejected Christ, does now that mean that all of the promises that God gave to the Jews are to be fulfilled in the church, what some have called the new Israel? So he's going to deal with that. Chapter 9, let me sum it up for you in a sentence or two. Paul says, Israel has rejected the gospel. Yes, they have. As a nation, they've rejected the Messiah. They've rejected the good news about salvation from their sins through the death of their Messiah and resurrection. 
But that doesn't mean, says Paul, that the word of God has failed because though nationally they have rejected him, some individually have believed. A remnant. There's always been a remnant, and a remnant has believed. Chapter 10, Paul says, The nation of Israel has been set aside by God. Has been set aside by God. But that's not his fault. It's because they rejected the gospel. Chapter 11 says that setting aside is not permanent. Setting aside meaning his enacting of the final plan, the wrap-up for the Jewish nation, all of the promises, that's been set aside. It's been set aside for almost 2,000 years. But he's going to reinstate the nation of Israel. And if the setting aside of Israel has brought enrichment to the world, and it has because now the Gentiles, us, have been able to receive the gospel and come under that covenant covering. If that happened because of their setting aside, once God brings them back in, that blessing will extend worldwide. And so, because this is important to the heart of Paul, important to the Holy Spirit who inspired it, it ought to be important to us, and we should answer questions, what about Israel? Where do they stand in the plan of God? Has God set them aside? When will God fulfill his plan to the nation of Israel? Now, in the next few weeks, though not tonight, we want to talk about different views. And they they interface in terms of what we believe is coming in the future. There are different millennial views. We'll talk about that, but just as a commercial, you might say, we're going to look at amillennialism, premillennialism, postmillennialism. And you'll have to say them each fast ten times to pass the test. No, I'm just kidding. So, chapter 9, the sovereignty of God in election. Chapter 10, the sovereignty of God in rejection. And chapter 11, the sovereignty of God in the reception of the nation of Israel. That's an, an overview, kind of skirting it as a whole. Now look at the first few verses. I tell the truth in Christ, or in the Messiah, I am not lying, my conscience also bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit, that I have great sorrow and continual grief in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. In this section, Paul is being gut-level transparent. He's not putting on a little fake smile going, Oh, I'm always happy. But he's saying, let me tell you something. My heart is breaking right now. I'm burdened, and I don't mind you seeing that. Something is breaking my heart. It concerns the physical family that I have on this earth, the Jewish nation. It's possible for a Christian to be full of joy and at the same time experience heaviness of heart and sorrow. And if you have any unsaved relatives, you know what I'm talking about. You can come in and experience fullness, but there's this little spot in your life that's empty because that person you prayed for and thought about wanted to win to Christ, tried to win to Christ. His eyes or her eyes have not yet been opened. They're blinded. It bothers you. Great sorrow in your heart. Now, you should know this. Even as he began in chapter 8 with such joy and now he sinks into sorrow, The section, chapter 9, begins in sorrow. It ends, at the end of chapter 11, in exuberant joy. And that's important. He talks about the rejection 
of Israel, of their Messiah. But he ends with the discovery of God's plan for that nation in the future. And it brings him great joy. So that's a little preview also of coming attractions. No doubt Paul was accused of being bitter at the Jews. After all, every place he went, the Jews persecuted him. As he left Jerusalem as the persecutor and went to Damascus to persecute, he had a close encounter of the divine kind. He was knocked off his horse. He saw light from heaven. The Lord Jesus spoke to him. He became converted. Then instead of being the persecutor, he became the preacher. And as he became the preacher, he became the persecuted one. Every place he went in the Greek and Roman sections of the world, he'd go into synagogues. He'd preach the gospel. An uproar would develop. A division would develop. Schemes would ensue. Stonings sometime. They would lie about him. They lied about him in Jerusalem. False accusations. And so Paul probably was accused by people of, oh, Paul, you're just bitter because you know the Jews are mad at you. And so, you know, you're preaching this gospel, knowing that it's going to aggravate them, knowing that you're going to make enemies. And at the same time, you're saying God has finished with Israel. Paul will say, oh, no, God is not finished with Israel. And let me tell you something. My heart is broken. I love these people. You know, think of Jesus Christ, the one they rejected. Oh, he loved that nation, didn't he? He stood on the Mount of Olives and he looked over Jerusalem and he wept. And I think most of us have in our minds that Jesus is sort of standing there silently as tears are just kind of dripping down his cheeks. In the original language, it's he wept wept audibly and he cried aloud. It was a convulsive kind of a weeping. The kind of a weeping you would expect as a husband is just informed that his wife has gone out on him and has broken up the marriage. Everything he's known is is shattered, and that's exactly what happened. The wife of Jehovah has turned her back, and Jesus weeps over the city that his father and that he loved. Oh, Jerusalem, how often I would have gathered you, but you, you were not willing. And now, Jesus said, as he pronounces judgment upon them, your enemies shall come in and cast a trench about you, And not one stone shall be left upon another. They shall all be turned down. Graphically, Jesus predicted not only the assault of the Roman army upon the city of Jerusalem, but meticulously ordered the prophecy of how the temple would be destroyed. History shows us that a fire broke out in the temple. The gold that was on the rim of the temple melted in between the cracks of the large stones And the greedy Roman soldiers, to get at the gold that melted in the cracks, took every stone of the temple structure itself and overturned it to wedge the gold out. And so the words of Jesus fulfilled, not one stone shall be left upon another. Paul knew what it was like to reject Christ. He himself was a Pharisee at one time. He was blinded to the things of God, blinded to Jesus Christ. But he was far from bitter. His heart ached for their blindness. Let me say to those of you who have been raised in religious homes, but you weren't a Christian as you were raised, you were raised in some some spiritual construct, but you never really knew the gospel, and now you're saved. You need to follow the example of Paul, because so often people that come out of backgrounds 
whether it's Catholicism or a Protestant religion, but they didn't really have a relationship with Christ or, or something else. When they come to Jesus Christ, oftentimes that person feels bitter, angry at the church they left, angry at their parents for not telling them the truth, and they become filled with bitterness rather than feeling sorrow. You know, that's the best they knew at the time. That's all they knew was right, and they gave it to you. And so, out of ignorance, perhaps, they taught it to you. But don't be bitter. They lied to me, man. Tell them the truth. Love them enough to tell them the truth. Love them enough to tell them the truth in love. And love them enough to have a broken heart to pray for them. When Nehemiah heard that the city of Jerusalem was in a scandal and an uproar, he didn't say, those creeps. He started weeping. He was hundreds of miles away, and he broke down, and he cried for his own people. And you can picture Paul like Jesus weeping over his people. And he says, I could wish that I myself were a curse from Christ for my brethren, my countrymen, according to the flesh. Can you imagine thinking that? Can you imagine actually feeling, listen, Lord, if it's possible, um, then, you know, I, I'd gladly forfeit my security and forfeit my salvation if the Jews could be saved. Does that sound like somebody else you remember in the Old Testament? Moses? Moses went up to Mount Sinai to get the law. He came down with the law, the tablets in his hands, all excited he's going to give the nation of Israel the law. What's Israel doing? Partying hardy. They're dancing, they're drunk, they have this golden calf they constructed. And he comes down and he breaks the tablets. He's broken hearted. And God says, Moses, tell you what, I'm just going to destroy this nation. I'm going to wipe them all out and I'm going to start all over again with you. Now, what would you have said if you were the only righteous person and everybody turned away from God and they disregarded everything you said? You know, you might be inclined to go, well, I like that plan, actually. <laughs> Do it. I want to watch the fireworks. But he said, Lord, then blot my name out of your book as well. God said, no, Moses. I'll only blot those people out on a singular basis who have sinned in the camp. I'm not going to blot your name out. But the heart of Moses blot my name out. And the heart of Paul very much the same. Paul knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Paul knew that Israel was blinded to the coming of the Messiah. Jesus came. They didn't recognize him. And Jesus was coming again. And unless they turned to him, they would not be ready for his coming. Many people, including many Jewish people, believe that something is on the horizon. Something's about to come down in the world. And Christians try to pontificate what that is based on certain texts of Scripture and then predict, but, but there's this general awareness like, uh-oh, something's going to happen. In fact, one rabbi said recently, quote, Time is rushing on. God must take a hand in history as he did in the time of Moses. This is the time when Messiah will come. He might even come tomorrow. You see, that's what broke Paul's heart. Knowing Jesus could come, but he already came once. 
This time he's coming the second time as the judge. And Israel rejected the Messiah. At the same time, there is a dissatisfaction today, presently, among the religious Jews in Judaism. They're not satisfied. The inner peace is not there for many of them. And I have a little quote, a paragraph, from a book written some years back called The Fuhrer Over Jewish Evangelism. This person says, We are living in an age where people want something a bit more tangible in their religion. They want to touch, approach, and feel God. Judaism has always been very abstract, says this Jewish leader. It raises more questions than it answers. And then he closes the paragraph by saying, The Jesus movement has all the answers. That's what Paul wanted them to think back then. That Jesus is moving, man, and he's got answers. And until they find that out, I have sorrow in my heart. Verse 4 is the description of Israel. Who are Israelites? To whom pertain the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the service of God, and the promises. Of whom are the fathers, and from whom, according to the flesh, Christ came, who is over all, the eternally blessed God. Amen. I'm glad it's written down. If Paul would have spoken this on a cassette tape, I'd have been rewinding it many, many times to get, what was that again? What was that again? Because in a couple short sentences, there's so much there. Notice it with me. To whom pertain the adoption? No other nation had the status of being called the chosen people, as Israel did. Adoption in the sense of being placed in a position as adult sons. By the way, no other nation did God refer to as his sons, but he did the nation of Israel. To Pharaoh, God sent Moses, and he said, tell Moses this, thus says the Lord, let Israel go, let my people go, for Israel is my son, my firstborn. In other words, you're messing with my kid, man, and it's going to make me mad. To whom pertain the adoption, that special privilege? Next, the glory. He's speaking about that that great evidence of the presence of God. Remember when Israel left Egypt and there was a pillar of fire by night and a cloud of smoke, pillar of smoke by day? It was the evidence of the glory of God, the physical presence of God that abode over the tabernacle. It continued in the temple. The glory of God was with them. In Exodus chapter 40, it says, And Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle of meeting because the cloud rested above it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Same thing in Solomon's time. It says the priests were unable to stand inside to minister. They had to leave because the glory of God. No other nation could say that. Third, the covenants. God gave the covenant of the land to Abraham and to Isaac, and to Jacob. God gave the covenant of the law through Moses to the nation. God gave a messianic covenant with David. The covenants were given only to the nation of Israel. Then it says the giving of the law. No other nation had the code, the law, the Ten Commandments, the first five books of Moses, as these people had. By the way, we have a, we have a, a debt of gratitude to the Jews for the Bible. 
because they gave it to us. They preserved the writings of the Old Testament meticulously. Man, if you could see how the ancient Jews handled their Bibles, you probably never stuff papers in yours again. Just the Dead Sea Scrolls attest to how meticulous they were at copying the parchment scrolls. There in Qumran, they'll show you the scriptorium. It was a whole room with niches where you could put scrolls and then benches where the scribe would sit out in the desert sun and all day long he'd be copying the text of the prophets. And so he'd write word after word, letter after letter, line after line. Then, at the end, he would count the original, all the letters, all the words, horizontally, vertically, and come up with one total number at the bottom. He'd count the copy. If they didn't exactly match, he was instructed to dispose of the copy and start again. So meticulous was it that when they found the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were ancient documents written hundreds of years before the oldest known manuscripts that we had in existence at the time, the most astonishing discovery isn't what they found in the caves at Qumran, it's what they didn't find in the caves at Qumran. They found scrolls, they didn't find any mistakes. As they compared the most ancient documents that we had and then these Dead Sea Scrolls that predated it by hundreds of years, they found they were identical. And their conclusion is even after hundreds of years where you would expect to see errors, there are none. Incredible copying techniques. And then preservation techniques. Those Dead Sea Scrolls written hundreds of years before Christ were found around 1947. Recent history. You can see them on display in Israel today. The giving of the law. The service of God is mentioned. That's the temple service, the priesthood. That came through the Jews. You know why it came? Because man sinned. And God saw that man sinned, and so God gave as a covenant to the nation of Israel a sacrificial system whereby through priests and the service in the tabernacle and the temple, they could have a relationship with God. The service came through Israel and the promises. Those are the messianic promises. Those are the promises of the future kingdom. Those are the promises of the land of Israel. And those promises are still valid today. It's going to be my great contention in the next three chapters to show you what God promised the Jews he's going to make good on. They haven't been detoured and given to the church. It's funny how the church likes to take the promise of the blessings of Israel of the past, but we don't want to say any of the curses are fulfilled. If you take it literally, you better take it all literally. The promises God made to the Jews are still valid. Isaiah chapter 11, you may want to study on your own. Verse 11, God says that he will bring Israel back into their land the second time. And I think that was 1948. And they're there to stay in their land. In fact, if you just look at Israel today. Hello? Somebody's phone. If you look at Israel today, it, it, it should sort of put a rest to the whole notion. And I hear people say, well, all the promises God made to the Jews aren't for the Jews today. Really? Then, then how did they gather together in the land of Israel after 2,000 years of being dispersed? Can you name any other nation that's been assimilated into other nations who has lost, in a sense, its identity into other nations, but has, after 2,000 years, been restored to its land and its original language? 
the promises. The fathers are mentioned here. That's Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, David, the patriarchs. The nation itself began with one father. That's Abraham. By the way, Abraham was a Gentile, not a Jew. I like to throw that out to my Jewish friends. Abraham lived in Ur of the Chaldees. His father was an idolater. God called him out. He obeyed, and he went into this new land. And this Gentile became the father of the Jewish race. And then there was Isaac and Jacob, and God kept making that reiterated promise of the land. Notice what's next. From whom, according to the flesh, Christ came. Of all that they had going for him, all the covenants, all the promises, all the fathers, the climax of it all, the mountain peak of it all, is that Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world, was brought to us by the nation of Israel. In the fullness of time, said Paul, Christ came, born of a woman, born under the law. Jesus, according to the flesh, was a Jewish male, dedicated as an infant in the temple. We see him again at the age of 12, almost 13 years of age at that turning point, no doubt being bar mitzvahed in Jerusalem at the time showing up for the great festival of Passover and tabernacles, showing the fulfillment of Judaism in Christ. According to the flesh, Jesus was Jewish. He was a Jewish man. But notice what else it says. Who, speaking of Jesus, is over all the eternally blessed, what? God. Amen. Now get the point. God has given to the Jewish nation all these promises, fathers, blah, blah, blah. And Christ, according to the flesh, he was Jewish, who is over all the eternally blessed God. Amen. You see what Paul is doing? He's saying Israel had it all. God in human flesh was their Messiah. He came to them. He came according to the flesh, a Jew, but according to his divine nature, he's God. Jesus was theanthropos. You've heard of theology. Theology is the study of God. Theanthropos. You know what anthropos means? Anthropology, the study of man. Anthropos means man. Theos means God. Theanthropos is the God-man. That's who Jesus was. You're anthropos. Jesus was theanthropic, fully God, fully man. And I know of no other text that is this explicit as to saying Jesus Christ is God. Next time your friends say, well, uh, that knock on your door with little green books. Say, the Bible never says Jesus is God. Paul says it right here. Who is over all the eternally blessed God? Amen. Now, I've got to tell you something else about this because it might come up. Some people have tampered with this text and decided to put periods where there ought not to be periods in its normative sense, where the antecedent to who is Jesus Christ, it follows that it's saying he is God. But some people have messed with it. In fact, the Revised Standard Version says, to them belong the patriarchs and of their race according to the flesh is the Christ, period. And then it says, God who is over all be blessed forever. It doesn't say be blessed. It's all part of the same thought. In fact, um, Paul the Apostle 
said Jesus was equal with God. He had the very nature of God, right? He emptied himself because he had the very nature of God. Jesus never had to become God. He was God pre-Bethlehem, pre-Mary. He was God in heaven, God in the womb, God after the womb, God after the resurrection. He is overall the eternally blessed God. When Jesus came to this earth, he was still God, though he emptied himself of his glory. I've heard people put it this way. When Jesus came to earth, he emptied himself of his deity. Oh, no, he did not. He only emptied himself of the glory of his deity. He was God in flesh. He was veiled, as the ancient hymn says. But he was God nonetheless. Now remember on the Mount of Transfiguration, what happens to Jesus? He shines. He shines as bright as the sun. His garments were brighter, it says, than any bleach could bleach them. Great description. And he was transfigured in glory with Moses and Elijah. In that singular moment on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of Jesus is unveiled. We see it. And I've read commentators saying, ooh, this is miraculous. Jesus' glory is seen on the Mount of Transfiguration. I don't think that's miraculous. I think the miracle is that it didn't show more often. The miracle is that he was God but veiled so you didn't see the glory. Then when the veil is lifted for the moment, you go, oh, now that's more like it. That's why before Jesus left in John 17, he says, Lord, restore to me the glory that I had with you before the world ever was. He divested himself of his glory. Now in verse 6, Beginning in verse 6, Paul takes two examples from the Old Testament, Abraham and Isaac, to show that God works on election. Remember that word from last time? It's a word we hated. It's the words our flesh didn't get along with. How can God elect people to be saved? Where is free will and all that? Well, he brings it up again to the Jews, with, with Abraham and with Isaac. Now, Abraham had two sons. What were their names? Ishmael and Isaac. If we say that to simply be a descendant physically of Abraham is all that is needed to be under God's covenant, what do you do with Ishmael? He was the son. And if you ask the children of Ishmael today, are you under the covenant promises of Israel? They would say, oh no, not at all. They might even grit their teeth and get angry at that. So it's not the physical descent that matters. It's the relationship that a person has with God based upon God's sovereign election. God's choice. God chose Abraham. God chose Jacob. And yet, here's the catcher, they shouldn't have been selected by natural means. We'll get to it. But it is not that the word of God has taken no effect, verse 6, for they are not all Israel who are called Israel, or who are of Israel, nor are they the, all children because they are the seed of Abraham. But in Isaac your seed shall be called. He's quoting now Genesis 25. That is, those who are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as the seed. 
For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. If you remember, God didn't even recognize Ishmael as being the son. God promised to bless Ishmael and the sons of Ishmael, but God did not recognize the work of their flesh. That is, Abraham and Sarah in the flesh had a child named Ishmael. Because God promised, Abraham, you're going to have a kid. He goes, what do you mean a kid? I'm an old dude. There's no way. I'm almost 100 years old. And my wife, you know, I mean, she's way past her prime, man. No way. Well, you're going to have a son. And so it says, when Abraham believed God, that God accounted it to him for righteousness. But years went by, no son. More years went by, no son. Finally, Sarah said, honey, let's get real. You're old. I'm old, though you're older. I'm, we're both old. <laughs> and probably what God meant by all this is that it's up to us to help him out. I mean, he says we're going to have a son. I think what he means is that you should take Hagar, my young handmaiden, my servant, and go and have physical relations with her. Have intercourse with her, and she'll be sort of a surrogate me, because there's no way I can have a kid. You guys get together, and the child that you produce will say, this is it, this is the son of the promise. So they had a child named Ishmael. Everything was going along great. Ishmael was being raised. You know, Abraham thought, you know, finally, here I've been given the name Exalted Father, and I haven't been a dad all these years. Now, I'm a dad, and my name fits. Then God comes to him again. He says, Abraham, you're going to have a son. And he thought, been there, done that. <laughs> no, I mean, you're going to have a son. Sarah's going to have a son. Not through, not through any handmaiden. Your wife's going to have a son. Then the next year, Sarah's going to be pregnant and deliver a child. So Isaac was born miraculously, the son of their old age. But when God told Abraham that he was going to have a son, Abraham, do you remember what he said? Lord, let Ishmael live before you. Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. In other words, we got a son. Use him. Fulfill your promise to Ishmael. He goes, no. But Sarah's going to have a son. Okay, now there's two sons. But then God tells Abraham in chapter 22 of Genesis, Abraham, take now your son, your only son, Isaac. God, uh, did you make a mistake just there? You just said my only son. I got two, you know. No, but God recognizes only the son of promise, not Ishmael. And not only this, but when Rebekah had also conceived by one man, even our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, nor having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. Second example is that of Jacob. Because somebody might come along in reading this and say, 
Okay, you used Ishmael as an example, but he was an illegitimate son. Uses somebody who's legitimate. Of course, God's not going to choose Ishmael. They didn't wait. It was the, the wrong stock. And so he uses Jacob, born to Isaac. Understand something about Jacob. God didn't pick him because he was perfect. If you know anything about Jacob, that's an understatement. Remember when he was born? He came out of the womb second, not first, second. And he was grabbing his brother's heel. And so he got the name Yaakov which means supplanter, or literally one who trips by catching the heel. And that's what he was going to do to his brother. And that was going to be his M.O. through life. He was going to be a trickster. He was going to think of ways to scheme and connive and deceive. And so he was far from perfect. And yet, God chose him before he was born. Before he was born. It was all based on God's what? Election. Sovereign election. Listen to the promise, Genesis 25. God said to the mother, Two nations are in your womb. You know, I guess that'd be bad news, wouldn't it? I mean, if, if you're told you have triplets, that's hard enough, but you have a na couple nations in your womb. Two peoples shall be separated from your body. One people shall be stronger than the other. And listen to this, the older shall serve the younger. The older was to get the birthright. That's Esau. But Jacob was the one that God promised would be the one who would have the fulfillment of the promises. So that God chooses not based on your genes, not based upon your parentage, not based upon your merit, but based upon what he wants. He's sovereign. He decides to choose. And I don't know why it is, but we get so upset Whenever we talk about the sovereignty of God, that God elects and selects people to get saved, as if what, God isn't capable or doesn't have the right to have a choice? We do. Why can't he? He honors our choice and even interfaces it with election, but God can make a sovereign choice. He made it with Isaac. He made it here with Jacob. It gets harder, though, however. Look at verse 13. As it is written... Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. We don't like that. That's a scripture. He's quoting an Old Testament scripture. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. God chose Jacob before he was born, not after he was born. When he was born and he grew up, he was far from holy. He was really a creep. And Paul in verse 13 is, is quoting from an Old Testament book, the book of Malachi, the last book in the Bible. Though God chose Jacob before Jacob was born, through the prophet Malachi, God spoke this controversial sentence, Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, 2,000 years about after they lived. So that they had lived, they had raised families, they had died, nations have developed out of their womb, they had gone their own directions, and based upon all of that history, not before they were born, it's not like God said, you know, I hate you. This is after all that historically has happened, this statement is made. A young student came to Dr. Griffith Thomas, I don't know if any of you have heard of him, but he's one of the great Christian writers and commentators of all time and said, Dr. Thomas, I have difficulty with that text of the Bible. 
I have a real problem when it says, Jacob I have loved and Esau I have hated. I have trouble that says that Esau I have hated. And Griffith Thomas said, you know, I have the same, I, I, I have a problem with that same text. But my problem isn't that he hated Jacob. My problem is that he, or hated Esau, but that he loved Jacob. That's the problem I have with it. For the life of me, I can't understand why God loved Jacob. We usually look at only that other part. What about the part that he loved Jacob? That guy was a real yo-yo. Yet God's sovereign choice and God says that he loves him. And so I read this text and I see that God's choice is based upon a sovereign will and I look at it and I go, you know, that's just not fair. And the reason I say it's not fair is because I can't think like God thinks. That's where we left off last week. I cannot enter into the reasoning processes of God. That means I don't have foreknowledge. God knew what the attitude would be at the time. God knew how these people would react and choose, just like he knows how we will choose. And so God can make a selection, sovereign selection, based upon foreknowledge, something that I can't enter into, and so I have difficulty with it. But let's personalize it for a moment. God selected you. Why? Because you were a good catch? Because you're so wonderful, too wonderful for him to pass up? No, you're a risk. I'm a risk. But God, before the foundation of the earth, had you in mind and selected you based upon his foreknowledge, based upon his sovereignty. Now, as a Christian, you are beautiful. But you didn't have much to do with that. The Bible says you're God's workmanship. You're God's work of art. He takes the dust and he creates something beautiful. He's the potter. That's the next analogy, by the way, coming down in these verses. God has chosen the foolish things of the world. Ah, Jacob fits there. And you and I fit there. And we become God's workmanship. So there's no boasting. As we go down into the next section, we have just a few minutes to go. Paul knew that people would object to election, so he selects two cases, this time Moses and Pharaoh. And he says, what shall we say then? Is there unrighteousness with God? Certainly not, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion. So then it's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. The incident that's behind this reference is in the book of Exodus, chapter 32, I believe. Moses comes down from Mount Sinai. God says, I'm going to wipe out the nation. God doesn't wipe out the nation. But that day, 3,000 are wiped out instead of the whole nation. And as an act of mercy, God spared the nation. And this is a powerful point. To those Jewish people who would say, I don't think that's fair. Why God can just decide to show mercy to some people and not others. He would say, well, you're right. In mercy, God spared you. He didn't wipe out all of your forefathers. Just some of them were destroyed and you're left standing. So if you want to argue the mercy of God, 
you better think of yourself and your nation. Your forefathers were spared because God said, I will show mercy on whomever I will show mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I raised you up, that I may show my power in you, that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore he has mercy on whomever he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. Be careful with that verse. It doesn't say that God made Pharaoh for this reason, but God raised him up. That is, God sovereignly allowed this man to occupy the position of Pharaoh, that though this man had a hardened heart, that God made even more firm, God might demonstrate his glory in the midst of it to his people through the Exodus. Remember, Moses said, hey, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh goes, who is the Lord that I should obey him? I'm boss around here. I'm Pharaoh, man. I'm God incarnate. I ain't going to listen to any of your gods. He hardened his heart. Some of us have a real problem with the verse in Scripture where it says, God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. And here it says here, it alludes to that. It says, and whom he wills, he hardens. Literally, it means God makes firm. If you follow the original story, this is how it goes. Pharaoh, not God, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh was obstinate. I'm not going to let the people go. Let my people go. Not going to let the people go. Each time he hardened his heart. Eventually, after hardening his heart, then the text says, and God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He made firm the heart. It's like God says, I see that five and I raise you ten. Whatever position you take, Pharaoh, I will make firm your decision. If you want to be obstinate and hardened, I will make you firm in your obstinacy. If you want to be soft or you want to harden your heart in favor of me, I'll make firm that decision. God doesn't arbitrarily go around hardening people's hearts. It is volitional. They must do it. And God will honor the choice and will make firm that choice. So if a person says, I don't care about Jesus Christ. I don't care about the Bible. I'm not going to follow Jesus Christ. I'm not going to get saved. God won't make you. God will honor your choice. God will make firm your choice. I don't care about hell. Okay. God will honor your choice to the extent that he will never force you to be around him for all of eternity. I don't want anything to do with God. Well, then don't blame God if there is indeed a hell and you go there because you've rejected him. That's not fair. How come I don't go to heaven? Go to heaven? You wanted nothing to do with God. You think God's going to make you hang out with him forever? He'll respect your choice. He will harden or make firm that choice. So don't worry, God won't save you. Unless you want to be. He'll respect your choice. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? How can God blame me for who I am if God has made me that way? But once again, it's the making firm and God hardens or makes firm in response to the choice of man. But indeed, O oh man, who are you to reply against God? Will the thing that is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me this way? 
You know, uh, Paul is following his little logical argument, kind of going back and forth in his mind with his imaginary opponent. He finally gets to a point, he goes, wait a minute. If I'm having a conversation with a guy like this, I'm going to finally come to a place and say, well, who are you? With your little theological debates, as if you're going to change the mind and the will of God, resist the will of God. Who are you, O man? Or as one translation says, who are you, O frail man, to argue with God? Kind of puts it down to the the, the bottom level. Hey, this is God's universe, Paul is saying. God made the rules. God made the people. If you don't like it, go create your own universe. But as long as you're on God's dust, breathing his air, this is the stuff. He made you. Does not the potter have power over the clay and from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and one for dishonor? Time's up. Let me close with a little poem. It sort of puts it in perspective, especially ending with verse 20. You cannot pull one little star in motion. You cannot shape one single forest leaf, nor fling a mountain up, nor sink an ocean, presumptuous pygmy large with unbelief. You cannot bring one down of regal splendor, nor bid the day to shadowy twilight fall, nor send the pale moon forth with radiance, and dare you doubt the one who's done it all. It's okay to question, but when it comes down to it, this is God's gig. He created you, and he's revealed himself to you, and he is willing to forgive all sins all the past, give everlasting life in exchange for all of the guilt, all of the shame. But if you resist, you're resisting against your own good. You're resisting against your own benefits. Here, here's eternal life. Don't want it. Why not? Because it's not fair. Well, what's not fair? Well, you, you talk about electing people. Well, receive my love. Maybe I'm not chosen. Well, tell you what, if you receive me, whosoever will, let him come. If you receive me, you'll find you were chosen. I don't want to, it's not that easy. I don't think I want to give my life. It's just a big, big decision. Okay, well, then maybe you're not chosen. Well, it's not fair. Well, then just receive him. Well, no, I, I, I don't want to. Well, then don't blame him. The sovereignty of God in election never precludes the volitional aspect of man's nature. Whosoever will, let him come. Whoever comes to me, said Jesus, I will in no wise cast out. No one who sincerely wants to be saved will ever find God saying, oh, wait a minute, nope, you're not on the list, sorry. Whoever comes to him will find that he's been elected sovereignly by God. Will you ever understand it fully? No. You'll blow a fuse if you try. I've known a lot of people who have gone into the depths of theology never to return again. (laughs) 
They've studied it in the Greek. They've studied it in the Hebrew. And they still don't know. So you know what? I've come to this conclusion. Thank you, Lord, for picking me. I'm on the winning team.